Hey, everybody, welcome back to the In Context and Culture podcast. So glad that you are joining us back again. Corey, it's about Christmas time. We're recording this on uh, Tuesday uh, before Christmas on the 23rd. Hey, Christmas I just Eve. That's right. I have a question for you just as we get started. I know I didn't tell you this beforehand, but is there any books that you're planning to read over the Christmas break? Well, I'm actually just trying to finish one up. I've been in the I've been in one for a few months. I'm reading a biography of Churchill, and so I'm trying to get through that. But it's like 900 pages, so it's a monster. Um, but you know, I'm also finishing up one. It's uh, called Progressive Covenantalism um, by Stephen Wellham and uh, another person. <laughs> so I can't remember who the other author is. How about you? I've heard of that book. Uh... Yeah, I'm trying to think of who the other author is. Um, so you are reading some more heady books than I am, uh, of course. You've been in seminary. I'm in seminary now. And so I do. I am taking a winter class. So I am reading a textbook um, or an academic book. But I would like to read three books over the course of um, break, or at least they're small books. They're, they're all small books. That's ambitious. But I'd like to read them. I'm taking a two-week vacation. So um, I've got plenty of extra time on the road. I've got an 17 hour drive, 22 hour drive, probably with kids. So, um, I want to read live not by lies. Um, you recommended that book to me. Oh yeah. It's uh, awesome. It's yeah. really good. I want to read live not by lies by Rod Dreher. I want to read, uh, irreversible damage by Abigail Schreier. I'm going to listen to like a two hour podcast of her talking about, um, uh, the, what she deems as the transgender craze seducing our daughters. And then, um, I'd like to read gentle and lowly by Dana Ortland. Yeah. You know, Dever, uh, I've got that one too. I haven't read it yet. You know, Dever mentioned, I don't know if you heard this, but he said it's second only to GI Packers knowing God for him. Hmm. So that's, that's pretty high praise. I mean, Dever knew Packer. And so um, that's, I think that's pretty cool. I definitely think, think to be cautious uh, to not read while you're driving. Cause you made comment, you've got a 22 hour drive and uh, I just don't think that's safe. Uh, so maybe audiobook would be a better way to go. So I've already downloaded all those on audiobook. And those are my that's Christmas good. list. So, so um, hey, that's yeah. uh, that's something that somebody uh, saw on Twitter the other day. Somebody asked a question. Maybe it was you. Um, if you listen to an audiobook, do you count it as if you've read the book? I don't so, know. can you do that? <laughs> Maybe if you intently listen to it. And I don't know that you could count it if it's like an academic book because I don't know anybody who can truly listen intently to an audiobook that's academic. Right. I mean, like Shriner's New Testament theology class that I just got, you know, went through. It's a 900 some page book. And there is no way I would have remembered a, a fraction of it that would be memorable, you know, um, if I just had listened to it on an audiobook. Which so, is ironic, right? Because like I can sit in class and listen to a lecture and I got it, man. Whenever whenever I hear somebody talk about it, it's locked in. But I'm, I'm with you. Like whenever you listen to a book, it's not the same. Yeah. I think if it's like, so I, I listened to 1984. That's the title of the book, right? 1984, George, George Orwell. I thought maybe you meant Wonder Woman. I wasn't sure. No, uh, 1984 <laughs> on audiobook. And I, I was able to keep all that in my mind. So, hey, uh, welcome back. We're so glad that you are joining us. We're in the book of Revelation. <laughs> this is a book. This is a podcast about Revelation. Sorry. Yeah. Um, 1984, right? Uh, great transition. Uh we're in Revelation chapter two. We're in the second letter to the churches. If you would like to know more about the structure and 
the significance of those letters to these individual churches and to the churches throughout history. Um, I would encourage you listen to our podcast from last week. It's episode five. When we talk about the church at Ephesus, it was a longer episode um, specifically to uh, what? It was too long. Sorry. It was long, but specifically to include um, just what the churches are or the letter to the churches in that section is all about. So welcome back. Revelation 2, 8 through 11. And just as a reminder, looking back at last week, these are letters in chapters 2 and 3 written to seven real churches. And yet they're very much representative of the church today at large. Um, they're written to them, seven churches in Asia Minor, Asia Minor uh, but they're written to us. And this is the same with all of scripture. You know, Paul wrote a letter to Ephesus. Um, he wrote a letter to um, uh Colossae, he wrote a letter to uh, different churches at the time, but that does not mean it's not for the church uh, of all time. And in these seven letters, Christ gives a personal and a practical message for local congregations enduring persecution to both hear and heed. And each letter has a common structure consisting normally of five parts and to remember them, like a typical Baptist, I use alliteration. So here are the five C's in the letters to the churches, five C's, if you want to remember this. Uh, there's a characterization of Christ, uh, particular often to the church's context. There's a commendation for what they're doing well. There's a critique for what they're not doing well. Uh, there's a command uh, often to repent or do something that they haven't been doing. And then lastly, there's a call to conquer and um, that way in which the Christians would conquer would be by remaining or resolving to be so faithful. So last week we looked at Ephesus. They were right in their hate. They were wrong in their love. They were strong in their head, but they were not soft in their heart. This week we'll be looking at the second church that is Smyrna. It was spiritually healthy and eternally prosperous, even while culturally hated and physically persecuted. So the church at Smyrna, Corey, do you want to read that passage? I will going to be reading from the English Standard Version, uh, beginning in chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So this is one of the shorter letters, is it not? It is. And, um, and in this letter, there's no rebuke. Um, which is very interesting. Uh, this church has been a, f a faithful church in the midst even of persecution. So in, instead of doing our typical context, Christ, culture, and controversy that we've been doing throughout this book, we're going to switch it up for these two chapters in the letters to the churches because uh, of the structure I mentioned prior. These, these, the, the, these, this section is very much letter-like, and so it's very helpful just to walk through it verse by verse. So that's what we're going to do. So I'll read verse 8, and then, Corey, any comments you have on it? I'd love to hear him. And the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So this is how Christ is characterized. The first and the last 
who died and came to life. Any thoughts that you have on that first verse? Well, just number one, that Jesus, I mean, he, he, whenever it says he is life, I mean, he's the beginning of life. I mean, he's the, the source of all life. Um, he's the totality of life. He's the finality of life, like everything about him. He's the author and finisher of our faith. Um, so, so everything about him is life. I mean, what does John say in his gospel that in the word, the word had life in him. And so whenever we think about this first and the last, there's nothing beginning. There's nothing after he is the totality of everything, but he died and came to life. And so as a result of that life or that death and life means that he can then give those who encounter death life. And so there, there is hope in that. And uh, so for these Christians that were encountering this persecution, as we read there, ones that will probably be called to give their life, Jesus is the hope that they have that he can give them life, even if they encounter death, because he is the firstborn from the dead. Yeah, I mentioned at the beginning that you have a lot of times in the characterization of Christ that's mentioned a particular word to a church that's been writing to. Um, this is not the word characterizing Christ in the church of Ephesus. They have a specific word about Christ in that letter. But this one is um, that Christ has died and yet he is alive. And I think that's a very specific and, and timely word because a lot of these Christians, as it will mention in just a few minutes, will die and they'll die for yeah. their faith. Um, but they'll die in a death like Christ being a faithful witness. And they can trust that as Christ is alive, so they will too live, Right. And, yeah. uh, and, and just to know that their, their God is more powerful than the other gods. He's the first and the last. He's always existed. He's always been Colossians chapter one. They were created even, um, uh, by the word of his mouth, you know? And so to trust in him is to trust in the powerful preexistent, um, you know, God who is alive. Um, so. And I, I think that's important for us to remember today because like we, we're going to face, I mean, this year, probably people have thought about death more than they have in a lot of years, just because of the pandemic and the loved ones that they have that are going through different, difficult things. And even if it's not in in pandemic, like, do we often think about Christ as this one who gives life after death? Um, I mean, whenever you're in a dangerous situation, whenever your life and death situation, like, do, do you think about this? Because this should be reality for us. Um, this should be something that gives us hope and, and perseverance. Um, and so I think it's an important word for Smyrna. It's an important word for us. Verse nine, <clears throat> here's his word of commendation. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So he knows really three things that they are encountering tribulation, that they are impoverished, and that they are encountering slander from Jews that say that they're Jews or people that say that they're Jews. So I want to comment on this for a little bit. Do you have something? No, I was just going to ask you to comment on the on the synagogue of Satan. Yeah. So I'm going to comment on a couple things here. I want to comment on the poverty that they're experiencing um, at the hands of the Jewish individuals. And I want to comment on the whole synagogue of Satan thing and feel free to add comments, but um, I did write a lot of notes for this section. Um, So once again, so important here is 
um, the fact that Christ is present with his churches and perceives what they practically need, right? At the very beginning of a lot of these letters to the churches, when it begins with the commendation and critique, it says, I know, I see you in ways that no one else can see you. And so I'm going to speak to you as only I can. And he mentions two things that they're healthy, even though they're enduring persecution and that there's some that say that they're Jews, yet they're actually Satanists. Right. Um, so two interesting things. So let's take those one at a time. Right. So they're healthy yet enduring persecution. So the last of the seven churches that are written to in chapter two and chapter three is the church of Laodicea. Um, and that church was materially wealthy yet spiritually poor. However, in, in sharp contrast, the church at Smyrna that we're talking about is spiritually healthy yet hated, persecuted and not wealthy at all. Uh, so they're potentially small. They probably have no voice in politics, no seat at Caesar's table, no church budget, no large audience, and no money for big events. They had no money or wealth to give, but they did have men and women, and they were willing to give themselves for the sake of the gospel. And this is why they're characterized as faithful. So in, uh, in Christ's words, unlike the Laodiceans, they're rich. And this is interesting because, because God is not looking upon the Laodiceans as the world did. The world perceive, perceived them wealthy, but the Lord prescribed them poor. And similarly, uh, God wasn't looking at the Smyrnans as the world did. The world perceived them poor, but the Lord prescribed them wealthy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, opposites of one another. Um, and, and how could this be? Like, how, how, how could God say that, right? Um, well, I mean, you look at like second Samuel 16 verse seven, when the Lord is speaking to Samuel, he says, don't look upon the appearance or on the height of this man's stature, because I have rejected him for the Lord sees not as man sees man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. And this is what we we're talking about last week with the Lord, because he is present with his churches, churches. Um, he's able to perceive things that maybe the rest of the world does not see. And the truth is, at the end of the day, is that God doesn't call his church to be successful in the world's eyes, but faithful in his. And, and faithfulness to Christ is what makes a healthy church. So even though they're encountering persecution and they're hated, they are healthy and prosperous, right? Yeah. Um, what the world sees is not what God sees. And so God commends them on what, the, um, uh, what they're experiencing because of their faithfulness. Yeah. I want to keep going if that's okay. Um, Unless you have some comments now for the, the Jewish Satanists or the Jews that claim to be the the people that claim to be Jews, but are not in our synagogue of Satan. So um, John seems to think and comment on anything throughout this, John seems to, to, to link the poverty that they have as a church with the tribulation they're experiencing as a church. Like they're, Mm -hmm inextricably linked. In other words, the poverty they're experiencing was most likely not due to just poor economic circumstances, but most likely from just living in a hostile environment, maybe looting from hostile mobs or um, direct um, uh, uh, experience because of the slander they're receiving, right? Um, uh, So the Christians are experiencing slander. And strangely enough, it's not coming from the polytheists, from the pantheists, or the atheists. It's coming from the monotheists who claim to be followers of the one true God. I mean, it's coming from the Jewish people in Smyrna. 
and and let's be clear and i think we need to be make a theological point here um these opponents the jewish people mentioned here may be jews by race and ritual but not in any terms of any genuine relationship to the lord and you say well how right because they rejected the lord's christ right so john says they claim to be jews but they're not so yeah. he's making go ahead yeah well I, I think that goes back to 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 one thing paul says is not all are offspring of abraham who are just um his offspring by um genetics if you will um right. you know they're the offspring of abraham by faith and so that's how you can classify them as being ethnically jewish but not really jews by faith for sure. Yeah. So, so I've even written a little bit of an argument late last night, you know, for this exact point. So he's making, as you said, an important distinction between inward and outward Judaism, right? <clears throat> the implication uh, in his sentence here is that the true Jews are not those that have, or sorry, the, the true Jews are those that have received and not rejected the Messiah. Right. I mean, this is taught throughout the New Testament. You mentioned one verse, uh, John, the same writer of Revelation mentions in John chapter one, he came to his own, his own people didn't receive him. Those are the Jewish people. But to all who did receive him, that's why I keep using this word receive, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, not because they had Jacob and Isaac's blood running through their veins, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man but of God. The apostle Paul, I mean, you used, I think this exact verse, Romans chapter two, verses 28 to 29 for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. Galatians chapter three, for in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to his promise. So this is important. This is important. It's not the Jewish people and Gentile believers. It is, if you are Christ's, you are Abraham's offspring, the promised right. heirs, yeah. right? For we are the circumcision, Philippians 3, as if I need to keep going on, but for we are the circumcision who, Philippians 3 says, we who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Ephesians chapter two, he's our peace. He's broken down the dividing wall of hostility. He's abolished the law of commands expressed in ordinance that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two making peace might re- so that he might reconcile us both Gentiles and Jews to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. So who is the body? It's believers the one new man that's been created in place of the two. So I say all that to say that John is not teaching something new, but in accordance with the rest of the new Testament, he's saying the true Jews are not those that have rejected the Messiah, but those that have received him of both Gentile and Jewish heritage. Right. And Jesus has, as he said, he would in the parable of the tenants, put those wretches that is the builders who rejected Jesus, the cornerstone, to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. That is those who would receive him, Matthew chapter 21. So why does this matter to us? And I know I've been just speaking a lot here, right? But why does this matter to us? I, I think it's so important to know this, not only ideologically, but 
theologically that a relationship with God is not reserved for a special elite or a specific ethnicity, but is for everyone who is in Christ through the spirit, right? And it's important to teach, not only to know that, but to teach that if someone claims to know God, yet rejects the son of God, they don't know God. And this is the story of Caiaphas, who put is, is, is in charge of the conspiracy against Christ to put him to death, who knew the first five books of the Bible and had it memorized and yet saw Jesus face to face and did not know him. Therefore, he did not know God. Right. So I didn't get to the synagogue of Satan yet, right? <laughs> so I, I know, is there anything you want to say before I get to the synagogue of Satan part? I know I'm speaking a lot here. Well, I think, I think in this context, I talked about the tribulation and the poverty being tied together. And um, and we'll get into that synagogue of Satan for, in a moment. But like, I think it's important as we as believers, whenever we look at people, they're going through tribulation and especially poverty <clears throat> is what Christ does not do is he doesn't just dismiss that. Like he acknowledges that. And I think sometimes we have a tendency to, to use something like this to dismiss somebody's tribulation saying, well, you know, like, yeah, this is tough now, but you know, you like, you're spiritually rich. And like, it's, mm-hmm. it, he, Christ doesn't dismiss it. He acknowledges what they're going through, but then he, he redirects their attention away from their circumstances to the fact that they truly are rich in Christ. And so uh, I think there's a subtlety there that we, we need to be aware of, and not be dismissive whenever people are really going through tribulation, because that's, that's something that's difficult. Um, it's something that's hard in their life. And if we could acknowledge that, yeah, you are going through this, but there's something so much better that you need to recognize and, and help them to view their economy, not uh, from the world standards, but from God's standards, I think is extremely important. But why don't you go ahead and hit the uh, synagogue of Satan, and then I'll throw in my two cents on that too. Yeah, yeah. So that was good what you said. So while I pretty much exhausted, I think, the subject, let me just say there is nothing anti-Semitic here. Um, this is Jesus, a Jew, writing to believers of uh, comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. And he's just saying, those individuals have rejected me. I, I made myself known to them and they rejected me. Right. Right. So when we talk about the synagogue of Satan, that's what's referred to as the gathering of these Jewish individuals that have begun to slander and partner with in many ways, probably the Roman people, um, an effort to persecute the Christian uh, individuals that existed in the Smyrna, Smyrna the region of Smyrna. So while many Jewish people, um, ethnic Jews, had become followers of Christ. There were, of course, many who, as I mentioned, continued to reject him, uh, Jesus, as the Messiah, and they continued to persist in unrepentant rejection. So John refers to them not as a synagogue of the Lord, a gathering of the Lord's people, but rather a gathering of Satan against the Lord's people. In other words, they are not a Christian assembly because by their own um, rejection, They're anti-Christ, right? So I don't think John is referring to a particularly satanic group of Jews, meaning a distinct group of non-Messianic Jews that hosted dungeon and dragon tournaments, played with Ouija boards, and trusted all their future to tarot cards, right? I think he's talking about the Jewish people who heard the message of Christ and rejected it. And in doing so, I think he's making a second theological, um, important theological point, right? 
just to basically say, hey, there's not a, uh, a third category or a neutral relationship that you can have with God. No one is neutral in their relationship with God. Right. So you can't be neutral in your relationship with God because of your ethnicity, right? Um, there, there's not the children of God, the children of wrath, and then like a third category, like the children of Abraham once removed, right? There is only biblically the children of God and the children of wrath. And the only difference between these two groups of people is not one's moral ability or one's specific ethnicity. It is merely reception and not rejection mm. of Jesus. So, so no one can appeal, appeal to their parents' relationship to God, right? Or, or who they are to claim sonship. Because as John the Baptist even taught to unrepentant Jews, he said, God can make the stones of this ground sons if you do not repent and believe in the coming Messiah. Right. So it's important to know for all of us that Jews and Gentiles alike, every individual that exists in the world to have a relationship with the father must have a relationship with the son and to have a relationship with the son. It is to repent and believe in who he is and what he's done upon the cross. Jews and Gentiles both must believe the gospel. Yeah. And I think, I think something that's helpful in understanding that is that, you know, just to set it in a different light is there's, there's two different families. There's God's family, there's the devil's family. And, and, you know, Jesus even looked at the Pharisees and says, you are of your father, the devil. Yeah. And, and your so sons of snakes, right? Right. I mean, your yeah. sons of the serpent. <clears throat> right. Yeah. And that's why John the Baptist could call them a brood of vipers and all of those things as well is because, because there are those two different families and, and Jesus looking at them and saying, you are of your father, the devil helps us understand how he can hear say the synagogue of Satan is because they are following the example of their father. They are the offspring of the serpent mm -hmm. and as, and they are coming against the people of God in this situation with the slander. And, and, and I'll just say too, like that this tribulation that, and that they were experiencing at the hand of the Jews is like it, it, in the Roman society, if, if you were considered Jewish, the Romans were very accommodating to Jews. They would allow them to have their own religious practices, but if they weren't, if they weren't in that classification of Jews, um, then they would be required to make sacrifices to the imperial cult, sacrifices to Caesar, and so some of this, some of this slander would be saying, "Well, they're not, they're not worshiping our God, and they're not worshiping Caesar." And so, as as a result of not being part of and participating in that imperial cult, that would really hurt them economically, because yeah. that was such a vital part of society, and so. So all of these things are working together in order to create this tribulation and poverty um, at the hands of the slander of the Jews here. So, so you're saying, and that is an important point, you're saying the slander is not just um, Jews uh, aggressively talking behind their back to say, you know, you guys are ridiculous and dumb, uh, but most likely there's, there's conversations with Jewish people, and I think we can say this um, is implicit in the text, um, with Roman individuals to say, um, hey, they're not worshiping um, uh, uh, our God. You've given us the opportunity to, to, to worship our God. They're not us, and they're not paying homage to Caesar. They're not offering sacrifices to the imperial cult. Um, uh, and so part of the slander is them, uh, the Jewish people, outing uh, the Christians so that they can be persecuted and eliminated. 
Yeah, and 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 by a result of that, they would be considered a threat to the Roman government. Right, right. Um, and, and I think that's important, not only in the context of what's being written here, but like important for us today because like we're we live in a post-Christian society, and, and our our stance for Christ will be viewed as hostile towards the the mores and the ideology of society. And just because you stand for Christ in everything that that He represents, um, like we're probably going to experience as believers uh, a form of tribulation, could even suffer a form of poverty uh, as a result. I mean, we've seen people in our society already that have suffered economically um, because they have stood for certain biblical values. Um, and which would be standing for Christ. And so, um, you know, this, this is very pertinent to us. Yeah. And, and it needs to be said, I think, as we move to verse 10, um, and it, I'm just saying what you've already mentioned, but the, these individual Christians and these churches were not being persecuted for a private acknowledgement of who Jesus was, but a public allegiance to him as Lord and Caesar as not. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, so they're already suffering, but apparently there's something else that they're going to be suffering in. Mm -hmm. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. So talking about the suffering that's to come, being thrown in prison by Satan and for 10 days receiving tribulation and some dying. Can you just make some comments on, I, I've talked a lot, right. And I'd love to hear your perspective on the prison and the, the days of tribulation. Well, first of all, he tells them not to fear. Like They don't have to fear. And that that's always going to be tied back to who he is uh, there in verse eight. It, they don't have to fear as a result of the fact that, that Christ is the one who died and came to life. So all of this persecution that they're suffering, um, they don't, they don't have to fear because Christ is their life. And, and when it says the devil's about to throw some of them into prison, it's, it's going to be, it's, it's going to get more severe for them. They are going to be imprisoned and, but there's a purpose in that imprisonment. It's to be tested and, and whenever you think about the, the temptation of the enemy and the testing of God, the, those, those three things can be the same event. And so the, the devil is, is tempting you to disbelieve the faithfulness of God. And so, uh, so if the devil incites the Jews to make these slanderous statements, and as a result, they get thrown into the Roman prison, there is a temptation at that point for you to disbelieve that God is for you, to disbelieve that God is going to come through for you in, in those moments. In the same in the same event, God is testing your faith not as a not as a way to hopefully to to get you to give in to the temptation. God never wants you to tempt. God never tempts you to sin, but He is proving your faith. So in the same way as that you prove the stability of like some, sometimes you'll see on the side of a cardboard box where it says it has been tested up to so many pounds. Right. And so like there's this tribulation and testing that's coming against them, this pressure that's coming against them. And, 
and they're going to be proven faithful in that. And so God is testing their faith that they might show, be shown to be faithful to him in this. And so while, while we might look at a, a particular situation and think, man, that is that tribulation is terrible, what they're going through. It's being used to show the validity of their faith. And it, it's a, mm. it works out to be a testimony to other people that Christ is better than their comfort, than their freedom. And so, um, so Christ is, I think in some ways, encouraging him, you, you don't have to fear like what I'm going to be, what I'm going to, what's going to happen to you is going to be used as a testimony to your faithfulness to me mm. and the glory of Christ. And word. so, so, um, so they don't have to fear. Um, but it, but it also says not only is it going to be for uh, testing, but it's going to be for 10 days. So can you, before you get to 10 days, I just want to yeah. comment on something you said, because it was really, really good. And it made me think of James 1, right? Because in James 1, in that chapter, it's something that you mentioned. And what you mentioned was that uh, God tests no one, right? Um, right? And if I remember right, my g- Greek mind, it's like parosmos, I think is the word, or pirosmos that's no used idea. for that word <laughs> testing, right? But what's so interesting is that earlier on uh, in like, I don't know, verse, what is it? Uh 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial um, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. This is James mm-hmm. one, right? Yeah. Which is so interesting because that's what brought, is brought up in our passage. Right. Yeah. Um, this testing that, uh, that God allows is, 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 um, is allowed by God brought, uh, brought by Satan's action, but God's intention is to mature them. I mean, the very beginning count it joy when you meet these trials, parasmas, of various kinds for, you know, that the parasmos, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. So mm-hmm. what Satan is bringing here, I mean, it says that Satan's going to throw you into prison. Right. God is intending for his own glory and honestly, their maturity and faithfulness and witness. Yeah. 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 I just want to comment. I thought that was just uh, reminded me of James one. Yeah. Nothing happens outside the sovereignty of God. Right. And um, he uses all things to eventually bring him glory. And so that's a, that's an awesome thing. Didn't need um, to stop you. Go ahead. No, you're good. Um, so yeah, whenever we're talking about uh, the fact that, that this is going to be for 10 days, this probably is not a literal 10 days. As we've talked about in Revelation, there's oftentimes many things that are symbolic. And if you make a comparison um to other things, to other time frames in the, the book of Revelation, you think about the millennial kingdom. Well, that's, I mean, that's a thousand years. And yet Christ says your tribulation is going to be 10 days. There, mm. there's, it shows that there's a limit to the tribulation. There, there's, there's going to be a limit to this imprisonment, the hardship that they're going through. This is not going to be forever. Uh, this is not even going to be a, a drop in the bucket compared with what is coming uh, that this, you know, Paul calls it this momentary affliction, you mm. know, it, it's going to be very temporary. And so that, that 10 days is to show them this is not going to be forever. You can endure because that it's going to be a short time. Look to something that's far greater um, in time, yeah, when you, when which you see- will be my faithfulness. When you see the lake of fire and hell mentioned, it's never mentioned for 10 days. Right. right? It's eternal. Yeah. Right. Um, yet with believers here, we have a, a word of saying just 10 days. Yeah. That's just 10 days. Yeah. That's um, good. 
anything else you have on that? Yeah, I just I just think of Matthew. Uh, so I wrote this down. Matthew ten twenty eight. Don't fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Mm, yeah, right. Absolutely. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Right. And so many of them are are going to die. Right. I mean, it says that be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. And for the sake of time, you know, we may not be able to go into all of everything here. I, I think you should comment what you mentioned about the crown of life, but. Um, it, it mentions in verse 11 to the one who conquers, I will not, will not, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The second yeah. death is eternal death in the lake of fire. Um, that's reserved for unbelievers, Satan and, um, uh, his demons. So, um, so, so interestingly, if you think of that Matthew 28 passage, Matthew 10, 28 passage, um, if you fear the one who brings the second death, then you won't fear the one who brings the first. Right. Right. Don't fear those who kill the body, uh, but can't kill the soul. Right. Bring the first death. Um, rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell, the second death. So if mm. you properly fear the one who brings the second death, you won't fear the one who brings the first. Right. It's only momentary. And death is but a doorway for believers who have trusted in Christ, right, to eternal presence with him. And, and I think that's extremely important because, like, we might look at this passage and say, well, the imprisonment's only going to be for 10 days and then they're getting out. But that's not necessarily the case because he says, right. be faithful unto death. And, and Romans didn't use um, incarceration for, for like long-term containment that they used incarceration for this short-term custody of those who are, who are waiting the, the penalty of death. And so most likely this being thrown into prison was going to result in their martyrdom. Mm. And so, so they, they had to remain faithful unto death. And, uh, and again, what you said, they didn't have to fear that death because they would receive the crown of life. And, yeah. and just commenting briefly on, on, on the crown of life, I think it's important yeah. for us to understand that, that uh, the context in which they sat would have been extremely important to hear those words that they were going to receive the crown of life because um, Smyrna itself, the embattlement that was around it and the buildings that were on this hill where Smyrna sat looked like a crown. And so, so Christ could literally be saying to them that, that what I'm going to give you is far better than what you could have in this life and in this world. And uh, as we talked before, you know, like my mind and yours did too, went to, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Um, because remember learning, learning that as a kid, right? Right. And, uh, you know, Fernando Ortega, like it's a great song, but um, that is, yeah, well, he's a singer. Go look it up. It's good. (laughs) Um, but anyway, like, there, there was a visual picture for them of you can have, you can have life in Smyrna and everything that that means and keep your life, or you can lose your physical life and yet receive something that is far greater, which is the crown of life that Christ will give. And I think we have to remember that too. So let me um, just make a couple comments on the second death and you help me out here. Um, but I think in conclusion to what, uh, you know, the, the call to conquer here in conclusion to, in his letter to the church at Smyrna, he's basically saying, Hey, if the believers in Smyrna will hear and heed God's word, right. They would die once, mm-hmm. but not twice. 
Right. So many of the believers would die because of their faith, but only once because of their faith, they would not receive the, uh, uh, because of their faith, they would receive the wrath of man, but not the wrath of God. Right. right. And so this first death, first death is physical and temporary, but the second death is eternal. Um, and it isn't, it, it is true that those who uh, are born twice die once. And those that are born once die twice, right? If you've been born again, you won't face the second death. And I think it's also true just to remind ourselves that John is trying to get across, just like with the apostle Paul, the verse that you already mentioned, second Corinthians four, this is a light and momentary affliction and is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul's writing that having experienced imprisonments, beatings, often near death, um, from the hands of the Jews, those that call themselves Christians, but they're a part of the synagogue of Satan, 40 lashes, less one beaten with rod, stone, shipwrecked, all these kind of crazy things. Right. And he says light and momentary, right? Just like the 10 days thing. Mm -hmm. So, so back to John, what is he saying? You'll be persecuted, but it's only 10 days, right? It's light and momentary. You may die, but once again, beginning of uh, this section, you may die, but you serve the one who died and came to life, who will give you the crown of life. So, so what does all this mean, right? First Corinthians 15, Paul rejoices and that Christ took the sting of death upon himself, right? So we can say death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your string sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, right? So because Christ has secured for us in his victory, life and life everlasting with him, this living hope, allowed them and it allows us even today to lose heart to, or sorry, not to lose heart, to not lose heart, even though um, the, the people of the day wanted nothing more than to take their breath away. And that, even though that we might experience persecution ourselves, right? We shouldn't lose heart because we have a living hope that um, is seated at the right hand of the father, right? Mm -hmm. They could stare death in the face with courage because Christ took the sting of death upon the cross. And so we, like the church of Smyrna, must hear and heed what Christ has said to his church. And at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, he says something similar. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Right? Continue to serve the Lord faithfully. He who called you is faithful. Right? You may endure tribulation, but you'll get the crown of life. Yeah, man, that's so good. Um, yeah, and just just to reiterate that, like, how could Christ call these people to die? H how could he do that? It's because he was the one that was falsely accused by the Jews. He was the one that was put to death by the Roman government. Uh, the very thing that these people are being um, asked to do right now, he's walked that path. Uh, ahead of them. And so in him, in him, they can find their life. And, you know, there's, there's nothing better in this world than Christ, nothing. And so, man, as, as we're thinking of, as we're kind of wrapping this up here, I, I just want to, I just want to encourage those who are listening that, that this message was received by the Smyrnans. Um, the church in Smyrna, that they, they listened. Um, I'm not going to go into detail, but if you have time, go look up the story of Polycarp. He was the bishop of the church in Smyrna. He was the pastor of this church. Um, Disciple in, of John. 
He's writing yeah, these letters. Yeah. And, uh, and he literally had to give his life. Um, he was burned alive uh, for Christ, just for being a faithful believer, a faithful Christian, and he was willing to do it. Um, and so go look up his story. And, uh, and lastly, I would say that this message was received and, and, as a result, it was passed down for, for ages to come because now um, this, this city Smyrna is still uh, alive and well. It's in the, uh, the country of Turkey. It goes by a different name now, and I can't think of the name uh, off the top of my head. Uh, here it is. It's Izmir uh, in modern-day Turkey. And some of the Turks call it Giaor, I believe. Uh, anyway, it's called the Infidel. Yeah, I don't know, uh, but it but they didn't it, get that reference. It's okay. It, li- <laughs> I, it literally means the infidel Smyrna, and and the, that's what the Muslims call it. Uh, Turkey is mostly a predominantly Muslim nation, I believe, and yet the city of Smyrna, which is a population of about two hundred thousand people, a full three quarters of them still profess Christ, and mm-hmm. so as a result of the faithful witness of this church in Smyrna that that uh, witness was passed on to others. And so we, we see that even today continuing. And so my point is, if we will remain faithful to Christ, even to the point of death, like we don't know what, uh, what further results that's going to yield uh, as Christ will use that faithful witness, because showing people that he is better even than life. Mm. That's good, man. That's cool. So, um, so let's wrap this up. Yeah. Let me me pray for us. And then I'll say a few closing comments. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this letter to the church in Smyrna and the encouragement that Christ gives them. And father, we pray that, that we would not look at this just as a historical account of a letter being sent to a people that are far removed from us. But father, we would see it as the spirit inspired word to the church today. God, that we would remain faithful uh, to Christ, even unto death, if that's what he calls us to. And Father, it may be as a result of martyrdom. It may be a result of just uh, prolonged illness. We, Father, n- no matter what you have us face, no matter what kind of tribulation, Lord, I pray that you would help us be faithful unto death by the power of the Spirit. And Father, that that witness would would go down through the ages saying, we believe that Jesus is better than life. And Father, I pray that, that all that hear this today will be encouraged to remain faithful in Christ's name. Amen. So we uh, want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, we are going to ask that you would go to your uh, favorite podcast platform or social media, however this is, however you're viewing this or listening to it, and give us a five-star review. We want to make sure that we continue to, to reach others, and uh, that's one way you can help us do that. And so uh, we will talk to you next time as we encounter the church in Pergamon. <music>